Morning, church family. So good to have you here this morning for 845 service. We have some good news today. Uh, several people went through the membership class last week and are, are choosing to call Desert Hills uh, their church home formally. And I, when I call your name, if you could please stand and uh, or just wave your hand. I won't make you stand. Just wave your hand. That way we know who you are. Christian and Bianca right here. Yeah. Welcome them. Christy Richardson. All right, welcome her, uh, Robert and Holly Gores, uh, right over here. Let's welcome them. Brianna Renault over here, and welcome her. And then David and Rebecca Scott, that's our new music director in the back. His wife is in the back. And then Gilbert Fernandez is somewhere around here right in the back. Let's give them all a hand this morning. And we had a couple that was sick this morning, David and Crystal, and they're also uniting with Desert Hills in membership today. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We have a lot going on today. In fact, we have eight people planning to be uh, baptized here uh, right at the beginning of the second service. If you have an opportunity to kind of hang out for a few minutes until uh, that takes place, I know they will appreciate you rejoicing with them and them making a public profession of their faith. And uh, that'll happen there at the first part <clears throat> of the second service. Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, we're going to begin reading at verse 17 with a message entitled, What Believing Looks Like. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. There's a story of an old farmer who was struggling to keep pace with the new high-tech farms in his area. A staunch believer in doing things the old-fashioned way, he considered the newfangled shortcuts of horticultural engineering to be a passing fad. Creating hardy hybrid plants and using the latest fertilizing techniques, uh, the new farms were doubling and tripling their previous year's crops. In fact, I talked with a guy from Monsanto about uh, three, four, five years ago, and he said that the seed that's in existence today yields 50 times more than the seed that was in existence 50 years ago. Now, the old farmer needed a new plan to compete. But rather than take advantage of the new technology, Lee, he set out to do it single-handedly by himself. His solution was simple. He would clear a large wooded section of his land and convert it into plowable fields. Uh, there was one problem, though. Cutting all those trees would take months, and he would never get the land cleared in time for planting season. He thought, if only I could come up with a faster way to cut these trees. Now, as luck would have it, the old farmer stumbled across an advertisement in a magazine. It featured a new chainsaw that promised to cut through a 20-inch log in 20 seconds. One inch per second, he thought. At that rate, he could clear his entire property in time for planting season. It's exactly what he had been looking for, so he hurried to the general store and purchased the new saw. The old farmer set out early the next morning to, began, to begin to expand his farmland. Eagerly, he selected a 20-inch oak tree as his first victim. With great anticipation, he set the cutting chain against the trunk of the tree and went to work. 20 seconds passed, and the tree still remained standing. He continued on, reasoning it was his first attempt and that he would get it eventually. After five minutes, uh, with the tree still towering over him, he began to wonder if he was doing something wrong. And when a full hour passed with only a small cut in the side of the tree to show for it, 
The farmer packed up the saw and headed back to the general store. The clerk listened patiently as the farmer explained the lack of progress and ranted about what great promises the advertisement said this saw could give. Let's take a look, the clerk suggested. With his hand, left hand, gripping the handle, the clerk braced the saw against the front, uh, front porch of the general store. Then taking his right hand, he grabbed the rubble ha rubber handle on the side of the saw with a quick pull, and the saw roared to life. And the farmer jumped back and said, what in the world is that noise? Thank you for the courtesy laugh, uh, those of you. He didn't understand he had to turn on the saw. That's for those of you from uh, California that moved in here, okay? <laughs> Have you ever felt like the old farmer? You ever felt like the old farmer? I think some believers feel this way towards the Christian life. They just don't get it. They thought that the promises of health and wealth that the television preacher gave them, they thought that uh, God was their maybe cosmic genie. They thought that uh, if they became a Christian, everything would be okay. But they didn't get it. Partly because maybe some have never been truly born again. Maybe they've never really received Jesus' payment as their own and Jesus as the Lord of their life. Now, some may feel like the old farmer because what they believed about being a follower of Jesus hasn't aligned with the Scriptures. Now, the idea that some have in regards to salvation is that salvation is a ticket. It's a ticket to a great event in the future, but it's not to require anything of them or cost anything or change anything. Now, let me say this. It may be true salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast, but let me say this. Salvation is way more than just simply a ticket to heaven. In fact, Jesus said it this way. He said, I, and, and he said unto them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Now, salvation always changes those who truly possess it. Now, it never keeps people the same. Here's what Paul says about the people at Thessalonica who had received salvation in Jesus Christ. This is how radically Jesus had changed them. It says, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. In fact, the church at Thessalonica was an example to all of Greece of what Jesus could do in someone's life. And then it goes on to say, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we need not speak anything of you. For they themselves show of us what manner in entering in we had unto you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now, salvation always changes people that truly possess it. And here in our text this morning, God is using Paul to communicate to the church at Ephesus what it really looks like to be a believer, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he starts by telling them what believers were in the past, what they were in the past. 
Now, Paul wanted the believers in Ephesus to clearly understand the contrast that existed between their past as unbelievers and who they were now as Christians. And this is what is written in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. Now, we understand that not everyone who is an unbeliever lives a total life of debauchery. Yet, what Paul shares are characteristics of those without Christ and also dominated by sin. He then describes the unbeliever first as walking in the vanity of their mind, in the emptiness of their thinking. Now, the person without Christ and dominated by sin's stranglehold lives in the vanity, the Bible says, of their mind. Literally, purposeless, listless in life. They're like the sailboat on the open sea without much wind and no rudder to steer them. They are going nowhere. The person without Christ is also in the darkness of their minds. It says in verse 18, having the understanding darkened. They are incapable of perceiving the things that God desires for them to perceive unless the Holy Spirit illuminates them to the truth of the Word of God and the truth of the gospel. They're incapable of understanding a biblical worldview and a Christian ethos. They can't. In fact, Paul describes these people in Corinthians by saying this, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, Neither can he know them, but because they are spiritually discerned. They are spiritually incapable of understanding. Now, the person without Christ and dominated by sin also walks with a hardness of heart. Now, while the Bible is continuously speaking to man, uh, while God is continuously speaking to man through creation, now, how many of you looked at uh, the wonderful sunsets we had this past week? I mean, they're beautiful. I mean, I've been to places around the country, and Arizona has some of the best sunrises and the best sunsets. And it's because we have so much dust in our air, amen? <laughs> and they're gorgeous. I mean, hues of blue and, and yellow and purple and, and just, just gorgeous. And we even had some clouds last week. And that's an unusual experience here in, in Arizona. I mean, the forecast is usually uh, sunny and hot. <laughs> but at least last week it was partly cloudy and hot, all right? But you look at creation, you can't help but think that God is trying to speak. Not only does he speak to us through creation, he speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through what he's done in the lives of others. And yet, those without Christ continue to live purposeless in their life, with the darkness in their minds, because the Bible says they have a hardness in their hearts. In fact, as you look at verse 18, notice it says, because of the blindness of their heart. Now, the word for blindness in the Greek is a word which we would translate as hardness. In fact, it has the idea of being harder than marble, to petrify, to callous. The word here is used to describe one's inability and unwillingness to respond to God's truth. In other words, they are alienated from the life of God, the life that God desires for them, and they lack discernment because their hearts are as hardened as stone. 
And the devil's job is to keep people blinded to the truth of the gospel and the truth of God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the gospel, who, uh, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. You see, the devil's job is to keep people in darkness. And here's the thing. People look at their problems in their lives, and instead of looking to God as a solution, they look at the problems in their lives, and they look at God as the causation of the problems in their lives. And oftentimes they get there because of hardness. God didn't do what they wanted him to do at some point in their life, and now they're hardened. Now, the hardness of heart leads to recklessness in living. Notice this digression. It says, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. The phrase, who being past feeling, has the idea of having lost all sensitivity, having no more shame, having no more ability to blush because they are hardened and have lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to unrestrained sensuality, immoral, sexual, violent, insolent behavior, and have worked or developed habits of uncleanness, impurity, and filthy behavior. Now, our culture seems to get worse and worse in its pursuit of sin. Things that would make people blush years ago hardly move society today. I remember 20, 30 years ago, if somebody was actually on television, and in a television program, if somebody was, was having sex in the television program, people would be ashamed. People would look at that and they would say, turn off the TV. They would censor it. They'd say, I'm never watching this program again. What is wrong with society? And today it's the norm. It's the norm. And that's how our society goes. Hearts which are hard and dark and dead to spirituality would rather keep the clothing of the old man I mean, the clothing of the old man is musty and decaying. The clothing of the old man is, uh, is our former life. It's emblematic of our former life. And, and, and most people would rather keep the clothing of the old man what they used to be than to change. This is really stinky clothing, actually. I think somebody burnt this. They would rather keep the clothing of the old man than change. They may like, not like all that goes on, but as long as they and others are allowed to pursue their life in their own way and, and everybody leaves them alone, they're okay. And the testimony of which Paul speaks concerning the society apart from Christ during his time is, is, is given here and he sees it, but more importantly, he wants the people here to see it as God sees it. Notice what it says. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. He was telling them they had lost their biblical vision. He was telling them they had lost their biblical worldview. A loss of biblical vision of the world is behind the erosion, I believe, of biblical Christianity in many places, especially here in America. 
many would imagine the world is better than it is. And because of this, the necessity of Christ and his cross is lessened, and the potential of the unbeliever is elevated, and the less the distinction we see between believers and unbelievers. But Paul wanted the church to understand that there should be a difference. And that's why he explains what believers are and then he explains what believers do. He explains what believers do. He uses Paul to explain the complete contrast between believers and unbelievers. And notice verse 40, it says, or verse 20, it says, but you have not so learned Christ. The Ephesians learned more than simply about Jesus. They learned him. They learned his gospel. They learned his distinct life. They learned his ways. They learned his ethics. They learned his spirit. They learned Jesus. They learned him. And Paul explains that as they heard him, they were literally being taught by him, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus himself is the teacher of every one of us as believers. Every one of us, even if the teaching is given through the lips of one of his followers, to receive Christian teaching is literally to hear the truth from Jesus. Now, those who have been taught uh, by Jesus and have a personal relationship with God through Jesus have put off the old man. Now, the Bible says, verse 22, that you put off uh, concerning your former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to its deceitful lust. Now, the old man can best be described as the former unsaved self, totally dominated by sin and self. Romans tells us that the old man is crucified. When Jesus died and resurrected, he made a way for us to get victory over sin and our former self and their desires. We do not have to be servants to sin. That's why the Bible says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. It's literally nailed to the cross that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And then it says, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, the problem is our former clothes are comfortable. They're comfortable. We have all been conditioned and accustomed to fulfill our own lust, and that's the normal thing to do. If it feels good, what? Do it. That's what we've all been accustomed to think and to do. But James puts it this way. He says, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then he says, and lust when it hath conceived bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. But the fact of the matter is, as believers, we need to continue to put off, literally to stop the former lifestyle. The phrase, put off, has the idea of stopping. And literally, every time those desires come up, we need to put a big stop sign in our head and remind the devil he has no hold over us. Every time when those desires well up in our body, every time they start to ruminate in our mind, we need to go to that mind and that desire and say, uh, God, I, I, I need your help. Holy Spirit of God, I need your power. I need to be emptied, and I need to stop. I need to put off the former conversation of the old man. We need to stop. Now, stop living like 
you lived before you were saved, is what Paul is saying. Why? Because that lifestyle is corrupt as you fulfill your lust. Now, we all have them, pet sins, things that maybe no one else knows about, or maybe people know about them, but we keep going back to them. Maybe it's lusting through pornography. Maybe it's soothing our pain through drugs and alcohol. Maybe it's blowing up when things don't go our way, and we try to justify it by saying, well, I'm Irish, or I'm Mexican, or I'm Puerto Rican, and that's just what we do. Well, what's that say about God? Maybe it's worrying about everything. Whatever it is, Paul's exhortation to the Ephesians and to us today is stop. That you put off your former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust. And notice what he goes on to say, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and holiness. Now, we need to renew our minds. The question may be asked, how? How do we renew our minds? How do we reset the pathways of our habits and decision-making so that we no longer act like we're unbelievers? Well, the text bears out two solutions. One is inferred and one is explicit. First, we need to understand what we have as believers. We need to understand what we have as believers, and that would go to who we are in Christ. That would explain our identity. Notice again, verse 24, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now, everyone who is in Jesus Christ is made new the moment they are saved. We are a new creation. The Bible says, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We're created in the text, it says, in Jesus' righteousness and holiness in verse uh, 24. And then 2 Corinthians 5 says, uh, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We are given a new spiritual identity, and understanding this identity will change everything about us. God uses Paul to communicate to this church at the beginning of the epistle here in chapter 1, and he tells them at the beginning that they were chosen, that they were holy and without blame, that they were adopted, that they were accepted, that they were forgiven, that they were redeemed, that they were the recipients of God's grace, and we are to understand those things as well, and we are to live up to our identity. Now, when we understand that we are created in righteousness and holiness, we can live righteously and holily as new creatures. Now, here's what James Clear writes considering, concerning identity in his book, Atomic Habits. He says, many people begin the process of changing by focusing on what they want to achieve. I want to stop smoking. I want to get there. I, I don't want to be a smoker anymore. I want to stop drinking alcohol because it's, it's destroying my life. This leads to outcome-based habits. The alternative, he writes, is to build identity-based habits. With this approach, we start by focusing on what we wish to become. Imagine two people resisting a cigarette. 
One offered a smoke. The first person says, uh, no thanks, I'm trying to quit. It sounds like a reasonable response, but this person still believes they are a smoker who is trying to be something else. They are, they are hoping that their behavior will change while carrying around the same beliefs. Now, the second person declines by saying, no thanks, I'm not a smoker. Now, it's a small difference, but this statement signals a shift in identity. Smoking was a part of their former life, not their current one. They no longer identify as a person who smokes. Now, but maybe you have a negative understanding of your identity. Maybe you're constantly speaking into your own ear negative things about who you are. You understand that you're new. You understand that you're forgiven. You understand that uh, uh, you're the recipient of God's grace. You understand that you're blessed, uh, uh, Ephesians 1, 3, blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. You understand that, but in the back of your mind, you keep telling yourself that you're a loser. You're never going to overcome that way. Now, here's what Clear writes. Once you've adopted an identity, it can be easy to let your allegiance to it to impact your ability to change. Many people walk through life in cognitive slumber, blindly following the norms attached to their identity. I'm terrible with directions, and so they never try to figure out directions. I'm not a morning person, so they never even try to be a morning person. I'm bad at remembering people's names, so they don't even make a chance at trying to remember somebody's name. I'm always late. I'm not good with technology. I'm horrible at math and a thousand other variations. And when you've repeated a story to yourself for years, it's easy to slide into these mental grooves and accept them as fact. But as we understand our identity in Jesus Christ, that we're chosen, that we're holy and without blame, that we're adopted, that we're accepted, that we're forgiven, that we're redeemed, that we're the recipients of God's grace. Here's what happens. It's an interesting diagram here. We can change literally everything about us. Do we have the little circle diagram? Okay, we didn't get that up there. All right, we won't do that today. But what happens is instead of uh, uh, focusing on the end, we get to the end because we already start there. We get to the end because we already realize that we're no longer that negative identity that we've adopted for ourselves for years. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been given a new identity and a new life, and we are in righteousness and created in holiness, and because of that, we live that way. So first of all, we renew our mind by understanding our identity. And then secondly, how else do we renew our mind? The Bible says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Paul gives clarification in Colossians chapter 3. And here's what he writes. He says, and you have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him. We are renewed as we grow literally in our intimacy with Jesus Christ. The phrase there in Colossians says, in the knowledge after the image of him 
that created him. Literally, we have the opportunity to spend time with Jesus in prayer and in his word. And as we do, we're renewed by understanding and knowing him. And as we replace bad habits of indulgence with good habits that will enrich us and literally feed into our mind, we continue to be renewed. And instead of dealing with our stresses by indulging the flesh, we deal with them by indulging the spiritual side of man. Here's how Paul writes it in Galatians chapter 5. He says, this I say then, walk in the Spirit, be emptied of those fleshly desires. Decide that you are no longer that former self, that you're stopping those things, and you are going to walk in the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. And it says, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It says, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. Second Corinthians uh, gives some clarification on this thing of in the knowledge of him that created him. Notice what it says in verse 17. It says, now this, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. But we all, with an open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. Anytime you see that phrase, it's used in James chapter 1. It's used here in 2 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 3. Looking in a glass, it's referring to looking into the Word of God. And it goes on to say, but we all, with open face, as beholding in a, a glass the glory of the Lord, notice what it says, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as the Spirit of the Lord. You see, God changes us as we develop the habit of looking into the mirror of the Word of God, and as we do, we're changed to be more and more like Jesus, like the new man literally by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, if you study this out, it literally changes the pathways of your brain. They, they call this in neurological terms neuroplasticity. Like when you exchange bad habits for good ones, it literally reroutes your brains and literally renews your mind. So God uses Paul to help them understand some things and the next thing he wants them to understand is how believers should live. And he gives them some, some, some guidelines. Literally, there were some things going on in the church that were not pleasing to the Lord. And, and he tells them that they need to stop some things. In fact, verse 25 says, Wherefore, putting away lying. He tells them, you need to stop lying. Stop. Now, Paul's words were poignant in his day. Why? Because lying was commonplace with the Greeks as well as with the Israelis. Now, lying is a dominant characteristic of the old life, and lying needs to stop. It needed to stop then, and it needs to stop now. Here's what he wrote, Paul did, to the church at Colossae. He says, Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man and his deeds. So literally, he's telling the church, you need to stop lying to yourself. Some of what we believe about our identity is, is something that we need to stop. I'm never going to get victory over this sin. Stop. I'm never going to be the husband or wife that God wants me to be. Stop. 
If you keep believing that garbage, that's probably where you're going to end up. So there's some things like that we need to stop. Stop lying, stop lying to others, stop lying at work, stop lying to the brethren. Now, this church is uh, imperfect. Why? Because we're all imperfect. We're not reveling in our imperfections. We are all recipients of the grace of God and should give grace. You are amongst friends here at this church. Why? Because there's level footing at the cross. But Paul is telling Christians we need to stop some things, stop lying. And notice what he goes on to say, and let every man speak the truth with his neighbor for we're members one of another. We're members of the same body. The church should be a safe place, and because it should be a safe place, and because it is a safe place, just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. As a pastor counseling people for years, I can't really help somebody that doesn't tell me what's going on. If I don't know the things that are going on, I can't really assess how to help somebody. And how would you ever expect yourself to be helped until you tell the truth? Tell the truth, Paul says. Then we are to stop being angry. Notice what the Bible says. Be angry and sin not. Now, it's possible to be angry and not to sin. We all understand that. We're, we're, we're angry and not sinning when we're angry at the things that God is angry about. But that slow guy in front of you in traffic is probably not what God's upset about. The other day I was coming out of uh, uh, Fry's and uh, um, there was a shopping cart that was right in the middle of a space when I was getting ready to park. And, and the, the tragic thing was, is like one space beyond that, there was the cart rack. Now, maybe I'm just more fleshly than you. But I saw that, that, uh, 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 that cart there in the middle of that lane, and I was getting ready to park in that space, and I couldn't see that cart as I was pulling in because there was a big truck. Um, uh, why do the biggest trucks park in the smallest spots? I don't understand that. But uh, I'm trying to pull around and get in that space, and, and there's that cart. And so I, I stop and pause. My door's open. I get out. I move the cart, put it in the spot. And I think to myself, I, like, and this is literally what I said out loud. I said... Who's the poop emoji? <laughs> That's how Christians cuss, all right? <laughs> Who's the poop emoji that left the cart here? This person needs to get a life. And, and I realized somebody was round, and I was like, oh. <laughs> you know, Christians have all kinds of ways to get around real cussing, all right? I went and put the cart down. But you know what I thought to myself after I realized somebody was around? I really didn't need to get angry about that. All I needed to do is get out of my car, shut my dumb mouth, and put it where it needed to be. But you know what? Most of the things that we get angry about are sinful in origin. Now, a couple things about anger. Anger is a strong emotion of dissatisfaction. We get angry when we're dissatisfied with something. Anger is not only a strong emotion of dissatisfaction, it's a statement of demand. I want this to get fixed. I want this to get right. 
cart in the middle of the parking spot. Who in the world would do something like this? Bless God, I would never do anything like that. It's a statement of demand. Anger is a destroyer. If, if you can give me a, a positive outcome of sinful anger, I'll give you a hundred bucks. I'll borrow it from Matt. So, <laughs> just, <laughs> if anybody can give me a positive uh, 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 thing that happened in sinful anger, I'll give you a hundred bucks. We can't. And then what else do we know about anger? Anger dethrones the sovereignty of God. Anger assumes that God isn't aware of what's going on in our life and our situation, and we throw a tantrum because we want him to correct it. Stop being an angry person. Stop getting upset with things that don't matter. Stop flying off the handle for silly reasons. Stop being fleshly in your anger. The Bible then further instructs us to stop being angry and gives us some instruction in it when it says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. In other words, don't go to bed angry at one another. Come on, husbands and wives. You ever went to bed and you're both sleeping and you're about ready to sleep but you can't sleep because you're so angry at that person that's sleeping on the other side of the bed? Or maybe you don't even sleep in the bed. Maybe you go downstairs to sleep on the couch because you don't want to be near that human being that made you feel that way. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. And here's why. Because when we do, it gives place to the devil. How many of you were in the military? Anybody in the military? Who can tell me what an FOP is? Forward Operation Presence, uh, Forward Operation Base, FOP, Forward Operation Base. It's a place where you go when you're in the military because you're ready to take some land. You go there and you establish a presence because you're wanting to get a further presence. You're wanting to bring more troops. You're wanting to bring more tanks. You're wanting to bring more uh, armaments to defeat an enemy. And when we go to bed angry and when we allow sinful anger to be a part of our lives, here's what happens. The devil has a forward operating position in our lives. He has a foothold in our lives. And if he's got his feet there planted, he can get the whole thing. So Paul says... Stop. Stop being angry for silly reasons. And then he says to the church, stop stealing. Stop stealing. He says, let him that stole steal no more. Now, did you know that the average cost per shoplifting incident is $559? Shoplifters are, are typically caught on average of only one per 48 times they steal. Did you know that employees account for the highest numbers of thefts among employers? And do you realize that loss prevention in most businesses aren't there because they're trying to prevent loss from the outsiders coming in? They're trying to prevent loss from the people that are already in the organization. That's why they're there. 
Did you know that uh, time theft is costing U.S. employers $11 billion annually? Did you know that? And, and some of the ways they do it, they have uh, a friend will have a, another friend punch in for them. And that, that person may or may not ever show up at all or may or may not ever show up until hours later and it's costing employers billions of dollars every year. So Paul says, stop stealing. Stop stealing from your employer. Stop stealing from others. Stop stealing from the government. Pay your taxes. Now, I don't like everything they spend their money on either. But I just heard 87,000 more IRS agents are out there, so they're coming for us. <laughs> they're coming for anyone that steals. Stop. Stop, Paul says. And then believers should stop hurting with their words. Notice what the Bible says. It says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. The word corrupt has the idea of rotten, hurtful, inflicting wounds on others. And Christians need to stop using their words to inflict pain. Let me say this. If you are proud of your sharp tongue, if you revel in your sharp tongue, maybe you need to get saved. Seriously. If you're reveling about every instance, you give somebody a piece of your mind and let them know how you feel. I, you know, is there regeneration there? Maybe. Seriously. Paul says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Here's what Proverbs says. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. James says, even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. We need to stop hurting others with our words, and instead, we need to use words that are good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So Christians, stop lying, stop stealing, stop being angry without cause, stop hurting others with our words. God is using Paul to tell this to the church at Ephesus and us today. Behavior like this is not emblematic of the new man. Behavior like this is emblematic of the old man. And they needed to stop these things. And he sums up these ungodly ways by naming sins that go along with them. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. Again, the emphasis is on that phrase, uh, put away is stop with all malice. Stop your bitterness. Stop your wrath. Stop your anger. Stop your clamor. Desiring to have your way. Stop your evil speaking. Stop already. And instead, be kind one another, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So Jesus has paid a debt that he did not owe. He has forgiven everyone more than they could ever imagine. He literally became sin for us and released us from all of our debts. And because of this, if you've received him, you've received forgiveness, be kind, 
and tender and understanding towards those that are struggling and having problems and be willing to forgive them. Let go of those hurts. Let go of those wrongs they have done to you. So Paul challenges the church to stop some things and to start some things with forgiveness. And then lastly, Paul writes about who believers can grieve. And notice this interesting sentence here in verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. So it is possible for the Spirit of God who indwells every believer the moment they are saved, it's possible for the Spirit to be grieved by our sinful attitudes, our sinful actions, and our sinful behaviors. Now, as those who have truly received Christ's payment as their own, we cannot lose what we already have. In fact, the Bible says we're sealed unto the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is God's mark upon our life until we're taken from this world. We can't lose that. But it is possible to put a frown on the Holy Spirit who's constantly compelling us in our hearts to live like we're truly born again. You felt it. You've sensed it. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, the conviction, the reproving of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in the Gospel of John that he reproves us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The Bible says that he, in John chapter 16, that he guides us into all truth. And I know there have been times in my life when I wanted to be sinfully angry and when I wanted to do something displeasing and dishonoring to God when the Holy Spirit has convicted my spirit and he's bore witness to me, Romans 8, 9, that I'm a child of God and that's not how I should respond. So I ask you this morning, is he grieved? Is he grieved? Does he have a frown or a smile this morning? We're going to do a little exercise. We just got a little bit of time and then we got to get moving because the next service is chock full. But there's enough time to make for this. If you're married, I want you to participate in this exercise if you feel so inclined. If you're single and you have a close friend um, that is next to you, that you trust, I want you to perform this exercise. Now, take the four categories mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4, lying, anger, stealing, and hurtful speech, and look over to your spouse if you feel comfortable. In just a moment, we're going to have a moment of silence, and ask them, if they think you may or may not be grieving the Holy Spirit by some things that need to change. Let's have heads bowed and eyes closed.